Hello and welcome to the Transforming Society podcast from Bristol University Press. My name's George Miller and I'm the editor of a new paperback series from BUP that launched this spring. Over the next few years, What Is It For? will explore the purpose of a range of institutions, beliefs, ideologies and other phenomena that make up the contemporary world, from veganism to AI, nuclear weapons to the monarchy. Inherent in the series concept is the idea that the answer to the question will most probably be complex and up for debate, but that it's worth asking in order to think about how the future could be better. The first three titles to appear in the series were War, Cybersecurity and Philanthropy, and now we have just published Animal Rights by Steve Cook, Associate Professor of Political Theory at Leicester University. Before Steve and I got on to questions of animal rights, I was curious to know how animals had featured in his childhood and youth. I grew up in Africa, and <laughs> I have some early memories of our, uh, my parents taking me along to to purchase a pig, <laughs> which involved a, a gentleman with a machete chasing a pig down a, through a pen and catching it and killing it there for us. I don't think that changed any of my opinions. I was pretty young at the time. My parents moved around quite a bit because my dad was a mining engineer before he retired. And we ended up in Ireland, where I went to school, for quite a, a few years in a fairly rural part of the country. And I had jobs, summer jobs, working on farms. I had a job sort of separating the sheep for the slaughter, cleaning out stables, and all the other sort of usual sort of farm jobs you'd get. But, you know, so I'd, I, I was familiar with what went on on a farm and what it involved. But I had conversations with people who were at the sort of more bloodthirsty end of things, who'd worked in abattoirs. And that was quite disturbing to hear some of those things. And it wasn't until I went to university and sort of saw a, a bigger world. I left Ireland, came to England uh, and went to university. And I encountered you know, vegetarians. We didn't have many of those in, uh, in Ireland. Um, and I started to think about it. And I went vegetarian early in university, partly because I'd seen a sort of one of those undercover films, what goes on in an abattoir. And, you know, the conversations that I had with vets and friends who'd worked in them hadn't really brought it home to me as much as the visual imagery did. And I thought that's that's enough. Right. I've got to got to go vegetarian. And it wasn't for a few years till my wife and I sort of had a conversation and thought, well, we know what the dairy industry is like, and it's every bit as cruel as the beef industry, if not more so. If we're, you know, vegetarian for ethical reasons, then we've really got to go vegan. And I started thinking then, you know, what are the intellectual arguments? For me, it had been very much a sort of visceral, emotional argument, and I, I wanted better than that. I wanted to see if there were good logical arguments for vegetarianism and veganism, whether I was doing the right thing. And I'd been studying part-time. I'd done an MA in human rights during that period, and I thought, I'll just... And it was really interesting. There was lots of really interesting philosophy in that degree. I thought, I'll just write up a proposal for a PhD in this subject to see whether there are good arguments. Um, I had friends who were doing animal rights activism. They were breaking the law. I wanted to know if they were doing the right thing. Should I be joining them? I had lots of ethical questions. So, yeah, I wrote out the proposal in a couple of lunch breaks, submitted it, got offered a place... I uh, haven't looked back. 
you talked about your childhood and the experiences and then becoming aware of the bigger picture and then reaching a point where you wanted to actually spend time seriously studying this question. Did it did that moment sort of feel like a like things really sort of coming together or like a sort of a real key moment in your sort of development as a both as a sort of I don't know, I think intellectual person and a feeling person. Yeah, I think I mean I'd be working in IT, right? And I actually think of IT as kind of a creative endeavor, right? So lots of problem solving. And I think academia is quite similar. <laughs> Philosophy is quite similar, right? We're, we're doing problem solving and trying to solve those kind of questions in quite creative ways. And I kind of reached an end of a career, a dead end in a career. I, I, I was management or management really, and I didn't fancy that. Uh, and I was working in university. I saw what academia was like, better paid, better holidays, and more interesting. So I thought I'll use this, this all the questions that I have as an opportunity to change career. And, you know, philosophy is just, it's just magical, right? It's a really exciting, magical subject area. All of those questions that bother you, you've got time, somebody pays you to sit and think carefully about the things. And in ethics, it's about the problems that confront you in your daily life. I guess one of the, one of the, accusations sometimes made against philosophy by people on the outside is that it tends to be overly abstract you know it maybe formalizes things into problems that don't have much bearing on the the real world you know we've all been asked about whether we'd pull the lever to divert the the train that's going down a particular track and so there there is that danger and we know that academic philosophy can tend to be people talking to each other in very abstruse language but from what you're saying you see it as really as a sort of toolkit for engaging with real world problems but do, is is there a danger that it can that it can it can veer off yeah and there are a lot of philosophers who almost treat it like a it's like an intellectual game and i can see the fun in that right everyone likes doing crosswords or something like that you know there's the, a pleasure in solving puzzles and there's also an enjoyment that we had in in arguing with other people <laughs> In, in trying to resolve those disagreements. Uh, uh, but I, I see this as a practical activity about trying to, to live better. And I find it very frustrating when ethicists do the purely intellectual stuff without an eye towards, what does this mean for my actual life? So the puzzles that I'm trying to solve are largely ones that I'm interested in for my own life or I see in my friends who aren't academics in their lives. And they make me think, oh, how should I deal with that problem? Now, those abstract thought experiments, like the trolley problem, they are really actually quite useful for solving some of those those problems. They make us confront what it is that really matters to us. Is it about you know, our actions, our intentions, how much good we produce in the world? Those are really difficult questions, and sometimes you have to simplify them quite a lot to solve them, or at least to find a position, find where you stand. So... Um, the abstract stuff is still really valuable, uh, but uh, I think mainly because I, I want to know how I should act and how my friends should act and how politicians should act and so forth. One of the things we're keen that this series should do is give readers some appreciation of how we come to be where we are today. In other words, sort of look at the history, look at the development of a particular phenomenon. And I wondered, when it comes to thinking about animal rights... Where do you go back to? What is the point at which you think interesting things begin to happen or we, we have records of interesting things beginning to happen? It's difficult, this one, right? Um, but partly because I'm not a historian. Um, and so 
there's always a sort of I could be doing this wrong question of studying history right um and, w- and when I was thinking about the book well, the first thing I did was look at how my colleagues and how other historians approach questions like this and that's partly because many of the records that we're looking at for the sort of history of an idea are translated and translations differ in terms of quality and interpretation and um, the kind of concepts that we use particularly really important moral concepts like justice and rights some of them aren't really in people's vocabulary until quite late some of them mean different things now than they used to and they mean different things in different cultures so you have to be really careful about how you approach that but we get interesting ideas like we recorded about the place of animals in morality from like two and a half thousand years ago from the greeks from pythagoras we see those Unfortunately, often fragmentary and lots of materials being lost. But we see discussions from later authors writing about them in the Middle East, in the Roman writers like Cicero. Uh, they're writing about ancient Greek thought. They're writing about crossovers between um, later on between Hinduism and Jainism and Islam and Socratic thought. It's, it's really exciting stuff. So you get all of those ideas, but there's nothing that I think is really recognisable as a thing we can definitely say this is absolutely about animal rights until the concept of rights really starts to become clear. And that's in the 18th century when we have people like Hobbes and, and Grotius and we have those big political um, events like Declaration of the Rights of Man, you know, the, the United States Declaration in France this idea of, of natural rights for for people that are, you know, something that's not given to them by a political community, but they just have in virtue of the fact that they're humans and they're worthy of protection. So that that is when we begin to see something we would recognise as, as rights or the discussion about rights, which can be applied to or extended to animals. But if we went back to the, to the ancient Athenian agora, it wouldn't be the case that we'd be, you know, presuming we can speak ancient Greek, we, it wouldn't be the case that we, the, the way that they were thinking about animals would be completely alien to us. There would be things in the way they were thinking about the problem that we could sort of recognise. So what, if they're, if they're not thinking in the language of rights or in terms of rights, how would they have begun to tackle this issue of what human beings owe to animals or how they ought to um, respond to, to animals. Yeah, there's quite a lot of interesting things. Um, it, it's a different sort of perspective, but it's recognisable from contemporary ethical af- uh, approaches, particularly in an approach known as, as virtue ethics, where we start by thinking about character. Right? So when we think about ethics, we can think about well, what's the right thing to do? And that might be, am I acting with the right intentions? Or am I producing good outcomes? Um, but it can also be sort of, what would a good person do? And I think of a sort of a paradigmatic good person. And what kind of thing they would do in these circumstances? What kind of... Are they kind? Are they, are they brave? Are they honest? And that's the sort of approach that we see in, in a lot of the ancient writings across cultures, in Confucianism, in the ancient Greek writings. This approach that says, what kind of character traits does a good person have? Is a good person going to be hard-hearted? Or are they going to be kind? And that's how the, the thought might be about how we, we respond to non-human animals. That's the kind of thing that we see in Pythagoras, in Plutarch, in Empedocles, and writings about their works. Some of that earlier stuff is also tied up with strange metaphysical claims about the soul as well, right? Beliefs that maybe we'll be reincarnated as a, as a non-human animal. And that 
animal that we'd be eating might have the spirit of Bob, our next door neighbour. <laughs> and we, we don't really want to eat Bob, so let's not do that. Uh, so there's a combination of claims going on there. That's where it, you know, it's it's difficult to separate out the metaphysical from the ethical. And you, you've mentioned a couple of times other religious traditions, given the complexity of, you know, all world belief. How do you, how do you in the book factor in the way that other cultures have perhaps thought about the human relationship to animals differently? Yeah, so I, t- I try to look at it in terms of, you know, what can we see as a recognisably ethical claim? So I look at the kind of claims that people make and I try and separate out the metaphysical elements from the ethical elements. And there's there's a lot of similarities across cultures, a surprising amount of similarities about uh, beliefs, a, a very strong focus on character across, you know, if we treat animals badly, it'll make us hard hearted towards other humans, for example. That's a common claim we see repeated across cultures. And therefore, if we want to be good to one another, we ought to be good to non-human animals. And, and I guess the other thing to say is that, yes, you're right, there's, there's so much, I can't possibly get all of it. So I, I've I lent a little bit on friends who are no better than I do and lots of other scholars work in these areas. Um, and I, and I, I tried to trace the kind of ideas that I'm familiar with through the sort of cultural connections. And it's, it's really interesting, you know, throughout the history of animal ethics and animal rights, the writers that we engage with a lot in the West are influenced really heavily by cultural connections. So Schopenhauer's a good example, heavily influenced by Hinduism, and he writes and Buddhism, he writes about those things as his influences. And so my job is then to go and say, well, let's go and have a look at that. Where did he get that from? And then trace that through. So there's a lot of a lot of reading other people's scholarly work about those kind of cultural influences. And um, I know we're painting with quite a broad brush and all, and all these things that we're discussing, but people can can go to the book and, and sort of read more more deeply what you've written. But would it be fair as a generalisation to say that for as far back as we have records of of human thought, our relationship with the animal world is something that has preoccupied us. So it's it, it's never it's never been taken as sort of uncomplicated and settled. There's always there's always some kind of interrogation of what you know how we should behave, what our relationship you know to the animal world should should be. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And but I, I, I do think that's different in in different cultures. In some cultures, it's been more marginalised than others. There's a really interesting book called The Animal Court. I've forgotten the author's name. It's a it's a really interesting Japanese story about, uh, and it's it's sort of done on the first person from the perspective of a, a group of animals sort of getting together to to, to argue about uh, their treatment. <laughs> You know, what, what, what's going on here? Humans keeping us in cages. Isn't that really unfair? But that kind of perspective, and this is a really interesting sort of philosophical work in, involved in this sort of literary style, quite heavily marginalised for quite, quite a long time. And it's harder to find references to animals in, in, in some traditions than others. I particularly wanted to ask you, Steve, about the relationship of science and animal rights You've already talked about how philosophy kind of gives us a gives us a toolkit, gives us a way of thinking about rights and responsibilities and so on. But from reading the book, it's clearly the case that science has played a large part in understanding the nature of animals' lives, and that in turn 
has helped make the case for for animal rights. So can you say something about that? Yeah, and I I think this is interesting because, you know, we've talked about philosophy being quite abstract, but it relies, at least in terms of ethics, on empirical claims, claims about the world. You know, there's this sort of um, question of why should we treat animals the way that I say we we should treat animals or someone else disagrees with me. And a lot of that hinges upon a, a an empirical claim about what an animal mind is like. So there's a question of how much do animals suffer? What, how much of the world can they perceive? What's it like to be a, an animal? How do they feel pain? What kind of emotions do they feel? Like fear and hope and friendship and love and all those questions. And if we know the answers to some of those, they can guide our ethical commitments. You know, if, if something can't be frightened, then that changes the way we be- we should behave towards it. If it can be frightened, then we shouldn't behave in threatening ways, perhaps, that would upset it. So, And those are, those are questions that require, to some degree, scientists. Looking back over history, it, it seems surprising, you know, you talk about empirical evidence coming from scientists, but given that people in earlier centuries lived in much closer proximity to animals... It seems surprising to me at any rate that the question of whether animals can suffer was something which was so long debated and there were people on both sides of people who who argued they were sort of little more than automata. Am I I wrong to be surprised by that? Uh, Well, no, human human psychology is very strange (laughs) and sometimes quite disappointing. So I don't think you should be surprised. There's some really interesting arguments made by Mary Midgley, I think Daniel Dennett as well. Many of our uh, assumptions about how we should behave towards non-human animals are grounded in a set of premises about their psychology that have to be true for our relationships to work. You can't domesticate animals and behave them towards them in certain ways unless it's true that they can form these affective emotional bonds with us, that they have that psychology. The fact that they're predictable that they're predictable enough to train and to, to domesticate means that they must have something going on in there that we can identify. Now, we're often wrong about the psychology of non-human animals, but there's some very basic stuff that should be obvious to anyone who's ever been anywhere near an animal. Anyone who's had a companion animal will know they can feel very complicated emotions, that they can practice deceit, that they can almost they act as if they feel proud, uh, they can feel fear and happiness and you know all of those kind of emotions and they can sulk or or feel guilty at least they appear to feel guilty right and if it looks like they feel guilty and we can make lots of assumptions that enable us to train them based on that feeling then maybe they do so yeah I, I think I think that's right it is strange that we have had to argue about it in new science but I think science has that place for you know proving the doubters that don't have that close connection now or for measuring. I mean, there are some animals that are quite alien to us. It's very hard to imagine what's going on psychologically, like a lobster. Uh, What what does a lobster feel, right? Um, Can it feel pain? The cutting-edge, really useful policy-based research that's been done recently over animal sentience has been done around decapod crustaceans, mollusks, and thinking about how can we test to see if they, they can feel. Now, of course, those tests, many of them are pretty disturbing. If you want to test whether an, ox, an octopus can feel pain, well, maybe inject it with some acid, 
watch what it does and then you inject it with a, an analgesic and see if it feels better after or behaves differently after that right that's a that's a common way of testing or drop some acid into a fish tank and see if the fish are sad and if they are well maybe they can feel pain I, it's pretty messed up but that's that's the kind of thing we can do to test to see if non-human animals feel pain with science and then that can inform policy and i guess in addition to the that kind of sort of hard science that's, that's and that's very hard-edged science that what you've just described many people listening to this will probably have seen the film about a about a diver who formed a relationship with an octopus and and so that kind of thing that sort of storytelling approach and seeing with her own eyes is also a very useful reminder that um perhaps the way we've defined animal consciousness and sentience has been much too narrow for much too long. Yeah, I think so. We know that thanks to, you know, research that octopi, not just, they don't just, they can't just form these nice effective relationships, although they're often very solitary creatures. They, they dream, you know, that, I think that's quite, that's an amazing thing to think about, the, you know, another, another creature. So there's something not just to, about their sort of consciousness that guides our ethics. There's a sort of feeling of, and we can we can feel in different ways to relate to them in different ways, get more of a sense of like wonder at the the variety of life and the kind of things that it can do. We're always being surprised. The research that's coming out about insects is one of those areas. Recent research has shown that bees will make motivational trade-offs. Right, they'll sacrifice some of their sort of well-being to get food. And they'll make a, there's a certain point where they'll stop doing that, right? It's no longer worth it. But they'll have these sort of complicated, I don't mind getting a little bit uncomfortably warm if I get some sugar. I can count up to three. We've got all these facts about bee minds that can change the way we relate to them. And, and that matters because, you know, recent market-based approaches around feed, animal feed and human food, are pushing us towards insect farming in quite serious ways so if we suddenly discover that insects can feel and suffer then the consequences of new developments like insect farming for human consumption are quite serious ethically um, so we need those sort of scientific advances to, to guide the ethical principles so you've got both the story of I guess the development of the Western intellectual tradition, you, you were saying that we begin to see rights language as applied to other human beings begin to appear in the, the late 18th century and into the 19th century. And we've also got this scientific story about increasing understanding of animal minds, animal feelings. When can we actually begin to talk about animal rights being put on the map as a phenomenon rather than just, you know, I guess we've been talking about the sort of the argument for it on grounds of sentience. And we've been talking about a sort of intellectual climate, which, which makes it possible to, to even begin to talk in terms of animal rights. So when do we begin to see that sort of beginning to bear some, some practical and, and intellectual fruit? I, I mean, in the, in the West, and I think that's where most of the sort of rights-based campaigning has been, it's the sort of arguments around vivisection and farming in, in sort of Victorian England is where I think it really starts. There's some earlier stuff around treating farm animals cruelly, but it's very hard to pick that out as rights because some of that's le has led, uh, leveled as a criticism of Irish farmers by British politicians. And that, that could as easily be a criticism of Irish 
colonial attitudes towards the Irish as it is about really about cruelty. So there's a sort of early bill in the U- in Britain about tail pulling of cattle and tying ploughs to cows' tails to or horses' tails to plough the land. But when when vivisection starts, it get uh, it starts to sort of really be a, a, a hot topic. It's bound up in feminist struggles, um, working class struggles, and that sort of combination of things really starts to to take hold in in England. Um, well, no, in in the UK, and then that sort of spreads across across to America and other. And it's going on in you're having similar sorts of conversations a little bit later in Europe as well. There's a long history of sort of animal rights campaigning that comes a little bit later in Germany and places like that. That's really interesting. And when and, and where do we get the first legislation which actually establishes any kind of rights for, for animals? So again, that's a sort of Victorian bit of legislation in the UK. I don't think it... I wouldn't want to say that it gives animals rights, but it's a, it's a bill against cruelty, right? Um, so it's about... So it's a certain protection. Yes, it's an animal protection legislation. And that, that comes about as a result of this sort of concern over vivisection. And you get that the birth of the RSPCA, then the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to, to Animals campaigning. And you get that sort of lots of debates in the, in the UK Parliament around that. I, I've tended to sort of not focus too much on that sort of historical content in the book because it isn't focused on animal rights at that point. As you say, it's a sort of, it's welfare, right? We ought to treat animals better it's not a case that we shouldn't use them or harm them if it benefits us. It's a, we should try and minimise the amount of harm or suffering we cause rather than prevent it altogether. So all the sort of practices we'd, we'd want to do, we still get away with doing. But if you're going to commit, if you're going to do scientific research in an animal, you have to, you have to give it an anaesthetic or something. Or you should avoid doing things that aren't strictly necessary. And whereas an animal rights perspective is going to say, no, you should, just shouldn't do that. <laughs> That's forbidden. Yeah. So you don't really see that sort of recognisable laws. Um, but there's lots of campaigning about improvements in welfare that, that continue around there. I'm going to ask you one more historical question, um, just because I think the 1970s were so important to animal rights. And in the middle of that decade, Peter Singer publishes Animal Liberation, which is still a sort of much referenced work in the field of animal rights. So can you just say something about well, first of all, am, am I right in thinking that was an absolutely crucial decade? And if so, what was it that was coming into focus then? And 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 do you think it sort of set the set the sort of foundations for the for the landscape that we live in now? Yeah, we still had a sort of a period where animal rights are really strongly talking talked about a bit earlier than that with the work of of Henry Salt, but it then goes quiet for quite a while. And the seventies are a period when you know people really start to talk about it again a colleague of mine Rob Garner who's written a really interesting book about what's known as the Oxford group of uh, scholars there's a group of philosophers and other academics based around Oxford who form a friendship circle and a lot of it's around food they go to each other's houses they cook each other's meals some of them are vegetarian and then they start talking to one another and then a book is published about animal rights ideas it's got a uh, an article by Ruth Harrison in it who's written Animal Machines in the 60s, about factory farming. We've had a consciousness raising around environmental issues in the 60s as well with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Uh, and then Roz Godlevich, Stanley Godlevich as well, they, they get groups of people together in there from their friendship circle and they produce a book with all these arguments about animal rights and singers in there as well. He's part of that friendship group. And he writes Animal Liberation, 
which is a really important book in the history of like animal rights movement. It's not an animal rights book. It's a, a utilitarian book. It's it's not claiming that animals have rights. It's saying that it's it's wrong to cause suffering and pain. And that's lots of good comes from that. And we think about how we should make the world better. We should think about the suffering and uh, happiness of animals as well as of humans. But he writes this animal liberation book and he draws attention to the amount of suffering that goes on in factory farming. Uh, and that's shared around lots of activists. And then these intellectual arguments about how we should treat non-human animals and the importance of suffering enters activist consciousness and helps inform political campaigning, um, which I think is really interesting. That's another really interesting aspect of thinking about animal rights as you do it in your book is is thinking about how it translates into the real world, what the sort of interface between the thinking, the reflecting, the publishing and the campaigning and the actual effecting of change. And I guess that has evolved a, a good deal in the last 50 years since uh, since the Singer book came out. Can you can you say a bit about that relationship and how you see it today? Well, it's, I mean, I think it's difficult because it's hard to because I'm a I'm a philosopher, right? I'm not a political scientist. I'm interested in those questions, but I, I think because ethics is really difficult, and we and life is really complicated, it's really helpful to have people who can sit and think carefully about all of the really tricky issues, that then help inform our campaigning. Now, campaigning you often want a really simple message. In politics, you want something really really simple: education, 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 or more recently, stop the boats, right? Those are really simple campaign messages. And then they can see lots of really difficult, complicated ethical problems underneath. Uh, as soon as you start interrogating them, you think, oh, what am I going to trade off this against that? And so maybe sometimes philosophy is, is difficult to translate into those campaigning issues. So many of those campaigns are arguments. They're about giving reasons. They're not just about emotions. So there's some good research around what it is that makes people change their beliefs around non-human animals. Uh, and one of the things that's very interesting is that we respond very well to shocking images. They grab our attention. I think there's something called a negativity bias, where, where bad things are more likely to attract our attention. So you often see uh, shocking images presented as part of animal rights campaigns. And they, they really grab attention. They grabbed my attention a long time ago. But they provoke negative emotions. You see an animal suffering, if you've got any kind of compassion at all, you feel bad. And one of the things that happens is you want to go, well, I've got a terrible bad feeling about that. I'd, I'd rather not think about that. I'd rather not look at that. And so you turn away. And so one potential response is to go, yeah, I'm going to push that aside and pretend that never happened and I didn't see that um, because I feel awful. But if you accompany those kind of shocking images with reasons and arguments, they're much more likely to persuade. People will go, oh, actually... It's not just a bad feeling that I've got to run away from. There's a complicated moral problem going on here that I need to engage with. So the sort of philosophical arguments can help provide those kind of engaging reasons to go alongside the shocking images and so forth. So, you know, even in a sort of standard campaign where we're going to rely on lots of you know, the standard newspaper headline image subhead <laughs> right that drags your attention you you also need the story underneath to be persuaded and not just have an emotional response and philosophy can do that 
sadly, we live in a world where we see that rights that are granted can be challenged. It's not a it's not a, a ratchet where once an advance is made, it's secure and we can go from that on to the next level. I wondered if that phenomenon makes you worry about animal rights in particular. And I also wondered if whether you talked about the sort of appeal to reason that the, the rights arguments can produce, I wondered if there are other forms of appeal that are not simply emotional, but other ways of engaging people with the fate of animals on the planet. Yeah, I mean, this is a question I think of, that connects to the idea of moral progress. The idea that, you know, we've got a, a, a and I think philosophy has a really important role here. It, it, I think it, it provides us with a picture about what a, a good future can look like. So one of the things that we do is known as ideal theory. We sit around and think very carefully about what the best possible world could be, would look like. What kind of moral rules would it have? What kind of institutions, you know, market-based institutions, political institutions it might have? The law, what would that look like? If animals were granted rights, what would that look like? And that provides us with a, a picture that we can imagine and we can compare with our own world. And that enables us to think, well, they don't match. So what's the best way to change the current world to move closer to that? Right, so it's giving us a sort of a direction of travel for making moral progress. And philosophy does, you know, does that in a number of ways. It provides us with that sort of broad picture of what justice might look like or what our institutions might look like. But it also provides us with the conceptual framework to think about it. It's really difficult to imagine worlds that are quite different from our own. Our imagination is, is not actually that great, right? When we're thinking about what to do, we only choose from a narrow range of options because we can't consider an infinite number. So we pick the ones that are most likely in our heads, we think are most probable, most, most possible. And we discard those that we think are just completely ludicrous. So when someone says, oh, an animal, a world in which animals are granted rights and our citizenship and maybe retirement benefits and health insurance, that sounds ludicrous to lots of people. But if you can provide them with the conceptual tools, like actually a right is a, an idea that can apply to non-human animals or the concept of citizenship can encompass another creature, then it doesn't seem so strange and ludicrous and it, and it can enter into the imagination. So I think there's that possibility of thinking, no, this isn't just a crazy idea. It, it's a possible future that we could work towards and it is possible. Now, I do think things have got better. I mean, you just look at the number of vegetarians and vegans in society, it's going up. When I started being a, uh, a vegetarian, when I became a vegan, the only thing I could eat from the supermarket that was ready prepared was one of those awful bean feast, add hot water and some vile soy mints, and there's your meal, right? And now, just living a day-to-day -day life that's the same as everyone else's is really easy. I can go and buy, well, eight varieties of ice cream. I can get my cookie dough ice cream from Ben and & Jerry's and cream and cheese and all of those things i don't have to make the effort as much right it doesn't seem so strange so i think we made that progress where it's become easier to be vegan more accepted now there's still an awful lot of prejudice an awful lot of negativity but i, I think the general progress the direction of travel is right there's still always the possibility that that's unstable something terrible might happen we might take a step backwards but i'm broadly optimistic about my fellow humans. That was Steve Cook, whose book, What Are Animal Rights For?, is available now. There are more details about it 
and the other titles in the series on the Bristol University Press website, bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. That's it from me for now, so thanks for listening, and goodbye.